understand what Jesus has done for us, the more we love him. The more we love him, the better we become at serving God in the world. And when we serve God in the world, the world is blessed in the way that fits with God's love for the world. And that's why we're asking together here, what did Jesus do? We want to understand and grasp what he did for us so that we would love him well. In loving him well, we would serve God in the world well. So, when Jesus died on the cross, what was God doing? That's the question that we're asking together here. And the New Testament offers answers to that question through a, a variety of different motifs, controlling ideas, and, and the variety is kind of like the way that light reflect, refracts through a gem when you hold it in your hand in the sunlight and you turn it. Each week we're looking at a different way that light breaks up so we can understand Jesus' love for us. And accepting that love, love him and serve in the world. This morning, the theme that we're going to consider is the theme of deliverance. The theme of liberation. Does anyone in here have a sense that they have themselves something that hampers them from which they need deliverance. One of the distinguishing features of human beings, and this distinguishes us, it seems, from all the other creatures in the whole world, is that we can find ourselves virtually imprisoned. We can be free and liberated in every way externally, but nonetheless, we can walk through life as if internally we are imprisoned, we are emotionally and spiritually bound. We can have every outward advantage and opportunity, but enslaved inwardly nonetheless. Have you experienced this yourself or seen it in others? Okay, thank you. Most of us do know this from experience. Some of us won't, but most of us will. Now, just as it's true that a person can live as if bound when otherwise free, free, it's also true that someone who is bound, literally imprisoned, oppressed outwardly, can live nonetheless as if they are completely and totally free, that their external circumstances don't actually have the power to determine their well-being, because instead of it coming from out there, they have an inner freedom, an inner liberation that, that determines their well-being no matter what is happening out there. Have you seen that ever? It's true that this is another unique feature of human beings, that you can do everything out there, and somehow there still is a light burning in here. And that's what God made us for. And this morning, what I'm going to show you is that Jesus' death for you, for us, for this whole world, has in fact emancipated us so that none of us, none of us need to live oppressed whether externally or internally, so that our liberty and our freedom, and this is true for you, and it's true for everyone you'll ever meet, your true liberty and freedom are no longer determined by what's happening out there, but instead have been achieved for us when Jesus chose to give himself for you. Knowing you, by the way, better than you even know yourself. A close examination this morning 
of one scene in particular in the New Testament is going to help us see this. We're going to look together at the Last Supper. Most of you have some familiarity with that, the last meal that Jesus made with his friends. It's told in the Gospels. That meal includes some details which shed light, in very significant light, on what actually happened when Jesus died on the cross, which are easy to miss because we read over it quickly. And so this morning, we're going to take our time there. So I'm going to give a decent amount of information this morning. Are you okay with that? Okay, good. Thank you. What are you going to say? No? All right. In in chapter 22 of Luke, starting in verse 7, if you want to follow along, open your Bible there. The timing of the Last Supper is where we're going to start. When it happens, you know, often the timing of an event is extremely significant to its meaning. That is especially true in the Last Supper. In verse 7 of chapter 22 of Luke, here's what we read this morning. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us, that we may eat it. Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem with his friends, and the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are beginning. Those two are both overlapping in the Jewish calendar. They happen right in the middle of what is called Nisan. For us, it's April. Both commemorate the same historical events for God's people, the people of Israel. We just sang about it. They both commemorate the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, from literally being enslaved. It is for them the most important event in their history. And Jesus has brought his friends to the city of Jerusalem on the very weekend when this is being celebrated. That means that there are thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of religious pilgrims that have converged on the city of Jerusalem while Jesus and his friends are making their way there. And at this moment when the story begins, everyone is making preparations to celebrate the Passover meal with their people. Now in Hebrew, that meal goes by two names. The first is more familiar, Pasach, which is just Passover. And it literally means to pass over. Have you learned something? The last plague in Egypt. The people of Israel were enslaved there, and God had heard their cries from that awful, oppressive life and promised to deliver them. And when God came on that last night, the angel of death visited every home in Egypt. If you know the details of that story, you know that back in the beginning, it was Pharaoh who decided to kill the firstborn of every Israelite family. Can you imagine living in a place like that? God said, I'll free you. The angel of death came to every single home except for those that were marked on their doorposts with the blood of a lamb. The angel passed over those homes. And so this celebration there in Jerusalem, it's called Pasach, Passover. There's a second name that it also goes by in Hebrew, and that is Zaman Hereshenu. That literally means the season of our emancipation. The reason it goes by that name also is because fleeing from Egypt for the Israelites meant leaving behind slavery and moving into freedom. 
their, their ancestor Joseph had come to Egypt 1,800 years earlier. You know the story, maybe, of Moses. Uh, you know the, the show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. Anybody know that one? Yeah, I played Benjamin when I was a kid in that show. It was my first theatrical appearance. Joseph comes to Egypt as a hero because he delivered the people from famine, and he comes also as a foreigner. And Pharaoh loves him. But then, as Joseph's family expands in Egypt, there's a new king that rises up when the Pharaoh dies, and he doesn't know Joseph or Joseph's people, and he doesn't like them because they're foreigners. He discriminates against them because of their race. And he decides that they should be property rather than people. And there is literal enslavement of that entire community there. He, he, he uses them to build his cities. He treats them like objects to be discarded when they're all used up because of their race. And God sees this at a distance and knows it's wrong. And so God comes up close in the person of Moses and says, This oppression, this enslavement, this lack of liberation is wrong, and God is against it. And then he speaks to Moses and says, it's time for you to lead these people out, and I'll empower you to do it. And then comes this season of their emancipation. Now, I want you to use your imagination for a moment. Can you imagine living in an environment where because of your race, you're enslaved? For some of us in this room, it's impossible. We can say we can try. But for others in this room, it's, it's quite a bit easier. Uh, we don't have slavery in our country anymore, but doesn't racism still weigh folks down? Yes or no? It does. Uh, that's just one form that oppression takes in our land. Do you know that poverty, not having enough, can be like a form of enslavement? And there are people all over our country, maybe some of you deal with it, who can't make ends meet and don't have enough. That's another form of enslavement. And, and, and this is the thing, right? There are figurative uh, prisons that are just as powerful, and it's hard to see unless you're there, but some of you will know the experience of having every outward assessment, nonetheless, feeling like you still are not free of depression. It's like a form of imprisonment for the soul. If you yourself have lived through, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hopelessness is like uh, the, the enslavement of your spirit without any sense. If you don't know that from your own experience, someone you know will. Uh, how about addiction? There are folks who are enslaved to their cravings for that fix that doesn't actually fix anything. Uh, those are obvious. There are others that are less obvious. How about this one? The enslavement to the opinions of others. Does anyone feel imprisoned by what others think of them? Do you know how common it is for pastors to struggle with that? That can make sometimes feel like I'm trapped. How about this one? The prison of the dreams and ambitions that you never achieved. Anybody deal with that? You know what's even worse than that? The prison that comes when you achieve your dreams and you discover that they don't deliver what they had promised. One of the unique features of us human beings is our capacity to experience virtual imprisonment. One of the things that's true about God said he wants every one of you to be completely and totally liberated and free. And better that you know your own imprisonment, God himself knows, and right now, in this very moment, attends to where we are gathered with a kind of fatherly love and 
dedication to us that we could never overestimate. He wills our freedom. Now, come back to the story with me for a moment. The disciples are approaching the city of Jerusalem. As everyone's gathering there to celebrate the season of their emancipation. And do you know that in their hearts they also know that they themselves are not totally free? If you can read the New Testament at some point and go through the Gospels, you'll see that this is a group of followers who have all kinds of trouble still oppressing them. They cannot see yet what Jesus knows as he moves toward this city. And what I want you to see today, which is that when Jesus gets there, he's going to initiate the events that will truly and forever secure their freedom entirely. And he'll do the same for you and for me, in, in that he will provide for a new exodus. An exodus from every external, but also internal oppression through his transformation of the Passover ceremony. They can't see it yet, but they're going to see it in a little bit. All they see as they come to the city is one thing, and all they can see is how hard it's going to be to find a place to celebrate the Passover meal. This is an aside. Anybody planning to go out for Mother's Day after lunch today? It's going to be hard to find a place to eat. I tried uh, last week to, and don't tell Michelle, she's not here, she won't hear this. I tried to get a dinner for her last week. They said, well, the only thing we have is at 9.30 at night. It's hard to get a, a place when everybody's there. They come to the city, and everybody's there. And so Jesus tells them, go find a place for us to celebrate the Passover meal. And all they're thinking is, how on earth are we going to find somewhere to eat? Look at what happens. This is verse 9. They asked him, where do you want us to make preparations for you? They asked us because not only do they know the city is full, but they can already see the tents that have been set up all around the perimeter of the wall, down the, valley, down the hill into the valley, because when Passover happened, the rabbis actually expanded the geographical boundaries of the city because it was required for religious pilgrims to celebrate Passover within the city limits. And since the city was too small for that, they actually made an exception on that weekend and changed the zoning map during Passover. And the disciples are coming, they can see the tents all filled, and other masters tell them, you're going to go get a place for us to, to celebrate, and they're wondering how on earth will this happen. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 10, listen, he said, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks you, where is the guest room? I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, already furnished. Make preparations for us there. Now this will sound completely outrageous to the disciples. Hundreds of thousands of people have already booked their guest rooms for Passover. And that's literally how it worked. People planned ahead and reserved the rooms within the city. And people who lived in the city, they changed their guest rooms into makeshift Passover celebrations to capitalize on it. And the disciples are certain that all of those rooms will have been reserved already. And what makes it even more outrageous is the sign that Jesus gave them to look for. Did you pick up on what it was? They were to come into the city, and what were they going to see? A man carrying a jar of water. Now, this doesn't seem as strange to us as it will to them, but that's because we didn't grow up in the Middle East. Only women carry jars of water, not men. Back then, men didn't carry jars of water. Only the women did. It's true today still. In those traditional cultures, that's the woman's job, not the man's. And so they have this sign from Jesus that is utterly outrageous. 
It seems absurd that they should expect things to go as Jesus said. I'm spending some time on this, by the way, because if you try to follow Jesus, some of the things he says to you will seem absurd to you. Look at verse 13. So they went and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. This is one of those details that's easy to miss. They get into the city, and there is a guy in the crowded streets carrying a jar of water. They follow him. They go inside. They tell the owner, the master requests your room, and he gives it to them, and it's already furnished for them. And right here is where the disciples are learning something which will help them understand what Jesus is doing. And we need to see this, too. And here's what it is. In Jerusalem on this weekend, absolutely everything is happening exactly to do what it takes to make it happen. 
If that's the truth, and I'm telling you what this story unfolds when we pay attention to it, is that's exactly who God is. And it's exactly who you are. The person who is either officially and truly because of what you're facing in life, or, or in, in a strange and metaphorical way, trapped in a prison, if that's who you are, and this is who God is, then Jesus Christ gave himself for you to liberate you. We're going to see how in a minute when they sit down at the meal. Because now they know everything's happening according to God's plan. But when the Passover meal begins, now there are some details that are unfolded that shed even more light than what was there before. Let's, let's see what happens when they sit down at the table. Verse 14. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. This is the Seder meal. Do some of you have Jewish friends who celebrate Passover, the Seder meal? Seder is a Hebrew word that means order. Everything happens in order, and there is a host at every Seder meal, the head of that family or that household. Jesus is the head at this Seder meal. He takes his place. Look at verse 15. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It's been in his heart to be at that table with them. He's been looking forward to it, even as he tells them he knows fully that this is the last meal he'll have with them and that his suffering stands before him. It is quite uncommon for a human being to move toward definite suffering with this kind of uh, eager anticipation. But here it is with Jesus. I've, I've eagerly desired to sit with you until it's fulfilled. He's looking at the present and he's thinking there is going to be a day when it's fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. But I've eagerly desired to sit here with you. He's letting them know that the cross is coming. We know that because we know the story of Jesus. They don't yet. He's letting them know. And now he begins to push forward a little more. Verse 17. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. A second time in the meal, he's speaking about the finality for him, the cross, which is ahead. But he does this as he takes the first cup. A Seder meal has four cups, always. All four of them have the same thing in them. Any guesses what it is? Wine through the vine. And listen, this is important. The reason that there are four cups of wine is the Seder meal is supposed to be joyful. Do you know that when you drink, you know, you feel a little less tense and a little more joy? That can cause a lot of problems, right? And it has, unfortunately. It's not God's will that alcohol would become a substance that brings destruction. And sadly, that's where we are, many, many of us. But, but the will of the Father was that we would have winding about the heart. And the reason there are four cups at the Seder meal is this is not a somber event. It's a joyful event because it's the season of our emancipation. And so you start with a cup of wine. And the first cup of the Seder meal is called the cup of blessing. Kedush in Hebrew, the cup of blessing. Does that sound familiar? If you were here last week, it would. Jesus distributes the cup of blessing to his friends, and he gives thanks, even as he has to unfold that this is the last time he's going to have it with them. Still, they don't see clearly what's coming yet for their master, but as the meal progresses even further, he speaks more directly than he has yet about the plan of God. And he does it through the motif of deliverance with 
what this celebration is about, the Exodus, in mind. Look at verse 19 now. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. That happened at every Passover meal. There was always the monster there, the unleavened bread, which was a sign of the haste with which the Israelites had to leave Egypt. But what Jesus does is he breaks it into something different. Look, he said while he broke it, this is my body. No one had ever said that. This is my body, he says, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance. This is a meal of remembrance. It's the meal that that we gather to remember the Passover. It's the meal that the people of Israel gather together to remember, thank God, that the angel of death and death in all its forms has passed over them. Why? Because there was a lamb that was slaughtered. It passed over them, and so there's a remembrance of that. And now Jesus says something new. This is my body which is broken, and now you're not going to remember principally the deliverance from Egypt without also remembering something else, and it is that my body was broken for you. They are now beginning to wonder, Last meal, broken body. He had mentioned to them prior to this that this would be his last weekend, that he would be arrested and betrayed. They couldn't yet believe it, but now it's getting harder for them not to see what he's talking about. And it becomes much more clear when he takes the third cup at the Seder meal. The first cup is mentioned here. They don't mention the second, but the third cup at every Seder meal is called the cup of Redemption. And it signifies, it always had, it signified for every religious pilgrim, all of the people of Israel, as long as they had been celebrating this meal, it always signified the same thing. The wine in the cup of redemption, the third cup, reminded them of the blood of the Lamb. And please listen, you have to grasp this. That was the sign which God had ordained. God had chosen this for their ancestors, the sign that would protect them from death, from literal death and from death in every form that it visits us human beings. The longer you live, the more aware you are of the fact that there are many forms in which death visits us. So try to picture this now. You're there at the table with your master, and he grabs the cup of redemption. It means to retrieve and recover something precious to you by spending what you have to get it. He grabs that cup. This is verse 20. He did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant, Jesus says. In my blood, he says. The promise of unbroken faithfulness from God. That's what covenant means. That's what it would have meant to them. The covenant was the promise that came from God himself to them. That no matter what, he would be their God. And life had gotten to a place for many of them where they wondered if God had given up on his promise. Jesus says this cup is the cup of of the covenant, the new covenant. Perfectly renewed fellowship with him and, and sins are completely forgiven. That's a part of the covenant. When there's faithfulness on both sides, Jesus says, this cup is not the blood of that lamb, but my blood, which is poured out for you. And now, now for the first time, the disciples begin to see clearly what's happening, especially two of them, especially Peter and Andrew. 
Gospel of John. That Gospel that begins with the highest description of Jesus' divinity. He was with God at the beginning. He was God. And that was God, the Word. And He became flesh and lived among us. The first time that Jesus appears in that Gospel, in, God, in chapter 1, He appears on the scene. And John, Jesus' cousin, sees Him walking. And He's with Peter and Andrew. And he makes an exclamation about who Jesus is. Look at this, this is 129. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I guess, and this is my guess, that when Peter and Andrew heard John say that, they didn't really understand what he was talking about. But now as Jesus is taking this cup and saying, this is my blood, it dawns on them. From the beginning, Jesus has been the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' blood will be spilled just as, listen now, just as earlier in that day, the two disciples that Jesus sent into the city to make preparations for the Passover had to go get a lamb, bring it to the altar at the temple, and slaughter it for the meal. The difference here, of course, is that Jesus is not going to be Put to death on the altar at the temple, but rather it will be the altar of a cross. And rather than forcibly be taken there, he will go himself, fully aware of what it will cost him. He will do it. He will allow his blood to be spilled so that the angel of death passes over you. So that the angel of death in all of the, the forms it operates. Externally and internally will pass over Christian Andrews, me. And if we had time, and if my memory served me, I could say every one of your names who I know. And it would be the best thing that I'd said today. That Jesus decided, he chose this, to lay his life down like a lamb. So that you would be liberated. So that you would be emancipated so that you would be able to live free, whether externally you were free or not. Whether everything was going your way or nothing at all was going your way, you would walk through life with the kind of confidence and settled joy and humility that made it so you were a perfect vessel of love for every person that encountered you, whether they were nice to you or mean to you. Whether they were a good co-worker or a miserable co-worker, whether they were a neighbor who made you joyful or kept getting on your nerves, whether they were a family member who blessed you or annoyed you, whether they were someone that you walked through life grateful that you had beside you or they weighed on you, Jesus will be their emancipation. And that's what they see at that meal, enabling them finally to be free. Jesus is our emancipation. Now, let me pause here for a moment on this story. Are you beginning to see a little bit more about what the New Testament teaches Jesus did for you, yes or no? I want you to see it. I suspect that if you're thoughtful as you listen, you will have some new questions that come to mind because of what you're learning. Does that happen already for somebody? I hope so. When we think, and we ought to think, God gave us minds, when we think about what the New Testament teaches, and we learn some facts, there are new questions that come. Why would God make it this way? Why the need for blood? We should ask these questions. Those are important. Some of them we'll get into in subsequent weeks. Next week I'm going to talk about blood and the 
blood sacrifice as, as a part of what the New Testament teaches. We set those aside for a moment. Here's the real question for you right now. Do not avoid this important question. This morning, what should I do? That's what you should ask. If Jesus did this, if it's true, then what should I do? And I have two things for you this morning. The first one is this, and it may seem simple, but it's not. Accept it. Accept what he did for you. Believe it. Believe in the sense that the New Testament uses the word believe. You, you've heard this, right? God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes, and it sounds like a cognitive exercise in the English belief. In Greek, it's pistuo. It's a word that means entrust. So, what should you do? You should entrust yourself to Jesus, the Lamb who laid down his life for you. You should believe that the blood that was poured out then was poured out for you, and that means you are free. You should trust that death in all of its twisted forms has no power over you anymore that you don't choose to give to it. When you are covered with the blood of Jesus, the angel of destruction passes over you, and then the power of the enemy that would have held you, Pharaoh, has no power over you, and you trust and believe that in your heart, and you watch what happens when death comes up against you. You do not have to be oppressed by it. You can, but you don't have to be anymore, so that wherever you are bound, you can believe and live as if it's true, that you are free. The power of the oppressor over you is overthrown. The prison doors that held you are broken. The bars are not there anymore. The sea that is between you and your enemies, they're behind you. It's opened up, and you can go free and walk on dry land. In the name of Jesus, I declare this. You are free. Now, if you feel it now, if you feel it even a little bit right now, for the first time, maybe, here, imagine that feeling and that experience in your heart. I believe it's what God wills for you this morning. Let it go into your heart like a seed into fertile ground. And then, do what you are able to do to cultivate the growth of that seed. When death comes against you in the form of someone's bad mood, is that going to happen? Someone's chuckling into spitting an argument later on, right? You look at that seed and say, put water on it, I'm free. I, I'm not bound to fight back in kind. When someone wounds you and that old impulse in you to retaliate, that's death. You, you're free to say, no, no, I planted that seed of belief. I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to get back. You know, if all of us did that on planet Earth, war would absolutely you can do it. And that's my first challenge to you in light of this, that you should believe and trust, and you should return to the throne of God all the time. You can do that in your heart. You can picture God there waiting for you and, and waiting for you to return to him and be forgiven and renewed. You can be grateful and keep walking on dry ground, except what Jesus did, and then live free. That's my first challenge. Here's the second one. And this second one follows that first challenge like thunder follows the flash of lightning. You see that lightning at night, you know something else is coming. And if you believe that here's the second thing which is going to come, which is that when you receive the freedom that Jesus gives to you, you become his agent of liberation in the world for other people who are still oppressed. Oh, I can keep going for another half an hour now. Listen to this. You will discover that you have a new sensitivity in your heart to where other people are being oppressed if you receive God's freedom. Here I'm thinking especially of the ways that others right now are being bound by the evil of, of malevolent forces in the world. You're going to feel God's spirit 
pushing you to be an agent of liberation for others. If you believe this, you are going to feel Christ in you, standing up against oppression that exists in the world. And it's your responsibility to respond as a liberator with Jesus. That's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's ours. The oppression that awakens God's wrath. And it does. It's going to stir passion in your heart, and you will be compelled to say no to every form of imprisonment. You're going to want to stand on the side of the oppressed. Where you see racism, you're going to say no, not just because you're a good person, but because it's against the heart of God. Where you see someone just oppressed down because they're different than the people around you, you're going to stand up beside them and want to stand with them and say, absolutely not. Not because you have goodwill, but because the liberator has liberated you to stand beside him. In the world that we inhabit, where oppression and systematic injustice persist, you are going to find that the more you love Jesus, the more you will want to serve him. And the more you want to serve him, it will mean the more that you work with him to emancipate in every form. And it may be grand and newsworthy forms, maybe for some of them. But probably for most of us, it won't be that. It'll be more subtle. Now take this to heart, I beg you. It will be the kindness that you show to your sister that frees her. Or the grace that you extend yet again to your spouse. It will be the humility in which you choose to say to the person that you wronged, I made a mistake, no excuses those little subtle acts of obedience to the liberator Jesus that will bring the liberation that you've been given to the people around you. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he was the lamb. And his blood liberates you by taking away the sin of the world. So the death passes over you and you are free. The more we understand what Jesus did, the more we'll love him better will serve him. Embrace the freedom that has been won for you and given freely. And become a liberator for others. Empowered by the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, what do you say? Amen. Amen. I have to add another prayer because the musicians won't come out in time. Let's pray. God, we love you so much. We thank you for the gift of your word, which, when we take our time with it, enlightens us to know what you have done for us in Jesus. I pray that what you've given us in this time to teach and move in our hearts would be a good seed planted in fertile soil, and that our faith would grow and our belief and trust would grow.